there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I've always loved poetry. Um, as a kid, I can remember um, getting some poetry anthology books um, and just pouring over those in my room, um, reading through poems, um, trying to memorize poetry, and even trying my hand at writing um, poetry. And as you know, at, in late elementary school, going into middle school, um, just trying to process through all of those emotions as a kid, um, being able to write poetry was, was really helpful for me. And I can remember um, one, one point where I, I don't know where it was that I came across this, but I came across um, an entry somewhere that was an invitation for kids, um, youth, to be able to submit their own poetry um, for a poetry contest. So I thought for sure um, I would write something and submit to this contest. And if you were selected, you would have your poem printed um, in this beautiful um, hardbound book, um, anthology of kids' poetry from around the US. Um, so I spent hours and hours um, writing and trying to perfect a poem to submit uh, to this contest. And so when I finally thought that it was up to par, um, I, those were back in the days of snail mail. Um, so I put a stamp on an envelope, I mailed this poem in, and then it was the agony of waiting, right? Waiting to hear back, checking the mail to see if there was um, something addressed to me. And finally the day came. Um, the day came that went out to the mailbox. There was a letter addressed to Larissa. Uh, and so I got this letter, I opened it up, and lo and behold, I was selected uh, to be in this anthology. 
that I was so excited. And the day came later on when the, the book that included my poem um, was shipped to the house. I can remember opening it up, uh, finding my poem in print with my name right there, thinking, wow, like the whole country is reading my poetry. <laughs> Right? I'm, I'm going to be up there and remembered along with people like Emily Dickinson. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe my, um, my dreams weren't quite that big, but I was really excited um, that my poem had been chosen. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that this was probably just a marketing plan uh, to get parents to spend $39.99 to read their own child's poetry, right? Um, and so as I got older, you know, my, my uh, dreams were crushed a little bit and realized that, yeah, I think everyone's entry was selected to be printed, right? Thank you, Steve. <laughs> no, I've gone back and read it. It was really not that good. <laughs> But it was, it was very exciting for me, and so I continued um, in, when I had the, you know, the delusion that I did win a contest. Um, I continued in reading and writing poetry. Um, but really, it's been the last couple of years, um, especially through COVID, that um, poetry has been something that's come back up in my life. And I just found myself drawn to poetry during this season. Um, just found myself um, seeking it out, getting um, books on poetry, and there was just something um, soothing and comforting to my soul throughout all of the, the uncertainty and the pain and the loss these last couple of years. Um, something about a crisis that poetry really speaks to. And it seems like a lot of the rest of the world felt the same way. Um, I've seen articles about um, the uptick in traffic on poetry websites since COVID began. There's something collectively within us that is longing for um, what poetry can do. It can, it can express our, our deep felt emotions in a way that regular prose just can't. Um, it, can, it can get close to describing the indescribable. It can allow us to feel emotions that are maybe lurking beneath the surface. In scripture, the, the Hebrew prophets so often spoke their words of judgment and hope in the language of poetry. The Hebrew prophets seem to understand this, this need within us uh, to be able to, to grasp and understand things that are beyond our understanding. And when the Hebrew prophets spoke their message, the message that the Spirit of God gave them, when they spoke that to his people, they, they often spoke that in this language of poetry. Giving voice to deep emotions, describing the indescribable. So many of the passages that we look back on in this Advent season, uh, the, the prophecies of Jesus' birth and his coming reign, they're all beautiful poems. They capture despair and grief, and they also capture hope and longing. So our passage today, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, is one of those prophecies, one of those poems. A message that Isaiah had been given to speak to God's people. A message of hope. 
But this message of hope came on the heels of a message of judgment and despair. Uh, a message of judgment where, where God's people were told that though they had once been like an amazing mighty forest, that they would be cut down and they'd be left as, as dead, dry stumps. And this, this harsh and difficult word that God's people were given, that, that they were going to be overcome and overpowered uh, by the Assyrian Empire who would come in and, and conquer them as a people. And Isaiah speaks these difficult words, and then we read Isaiah 11 about a, a stump, a dry stump that had been cut off, and what seemed to be dead, if you looked close, there was a little bit of a green sprout beginning to come up. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesse, the, the father of King David, is described as, as a stump that's been cut off, a tree that has been felled. God had made a covenant with David that his throne and his kingdom would be everlasting, that his house would stand strong. And God even says that if anyone could break the covenant I have with the son with the day and the night to, to come and to go, if, if they can cause me to break my covenant with the son, then only then could I break my covenant with David. God promised that, that this covenant he made, that, that David's line, his household, his dynasty would, would reign forever, that this was a promise he would fulfill. But here we are, and Isaiah has spoken this harsh word about the, the family of David being cut off. And rightfully so, the people of God would be confused and would be desperate. They would be wondering, has this, this faithful, loving God, who has endured so much unfaithfulness from us, has he finally reached the end of his patience? Has he finally given up on us? Despair would be a legitimate response to this situation. But where others see a mighty tree that has been cut down and destroyed, 
Isaiah sees more. He sees a sprout beginning to emerge. Most of us have had earth-shattering experiences in our life. Earth-shattering experiences that bring us to the point of despair that cause us to question God, his presence, his love, his faithfulness, his power, his ability to work in our lives. These situations where all hope is gone and God seems to have forgotten us. Situations like a life-altering diagnosis, a spouse's unfaithfulness, a call in the middle of the night that has the worst news you've ever heard, long-term experience of infertility, shattering experiences of abuse, a career that's in shambles, debilitating struggle with depression, a family or friend's betrayal. Now imagine those feelings. Those feelings when you were receiving the worst news of your life, when you were walking through the darkest point of your days. Those feelings of hopelessness, rejection, abandonment, despair. And then imagine these words being prophetically spoken over your life. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That place that seems like it's only death and a memory of what used to be amazing, in that place, God speaks life. In that place where it seems like all hope is gone, God has been at work under the surface, deep in the ground, in the roots. He has been working resurrection life. He's doing something in the darkness. God is working below the surface and life is beginning to burst forth from the grave. These are Isaiah's life-giving, hope-filled words to God's people. For a people whose kings and leaders had failed them, who had failed to live up to their, their call, their mantle, the responsibility they had to rule with, with faithfulness and righteousness and justice. An announcement was being made that there was a new king who would come. A new king who would come from the line of David. A new king who would walk in the anointing of the Spirit of God. That God's Spirit would rest on him. A breath that would be breathed on, into him like Adam when God reached down into the dirt and formed humankind and breathed his very breath of life into them. This is the promise that God gave of, of this Messiah, this king who would come, that he would breathe his spirit into him, into this new Adam. And the attributes of the spirit of the Lord that would rest upon this, this coming king 
These are the attributes that are needed for judges and for kings and for leaders, government officials, for a new David, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, all that is needed to rule rightly and justly, given to him by the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what he sees or by what he hears, but instead with righteousness, with justice, with equity. He'll rule in a way that the poor and those who are oppressed will be cared for. He'll rule in a way that is right and just for those who are innocent as well as for the evildoer and the oppressor. And even when he gives out his justice and his judgment on the evildoer, if you see here in the, the words that are described about the way God will deal with the evildoer, you see that he does it not with weapons of enforcement and show of power, but instead simply by the word of his mouth. That, that God doesn't need to use our ways of, of force and violence to deal with the conditions of evil around us. All he has to do is speak a word and evil will be stopped in its tracks. We have a saying in, in the U.S., at least, I don't know, everywhere else, but this saying that you've, you've most likely heard that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, here we see Jesus Christ able to disarm our evil. He's able to disarm it with a word. He himself is so powerful that he can deal with all that is wrong around us. We can't imagine justice without violence and a show of brute power and force. We can't imagine justice and peace without coercion and war, but Jesus has a new way. Jesus has a new way that he is showing us and a new way that he will unveil across the earth. And he will wear righteousness and faithfulness like clothing. Everything that the kings and leaders of Israel and Judah couldn't do, now the shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to fulfill in the power of the Spirit's breath in his life. Their failures where they didn't live up to all they were supposed to be as rulers, the way they didn't embody justice, righteousness, wisdom, fear of the Lord, care for the poor and the oppressed, the vulnerable. This new king, this Messiah, would fulfill all that the kings were meant to do as shepherds of God's flock. All that humanity was meant to do as God's image bearers and representatives, his stewards of creation this shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, would do all of this in the power of the Spirit resting upon him. Where there once was hopelessness and despair, now a green sprout is coming up, 
new life breaking forth where everyone thought that all hope was gone. The theologian Walter Brueggemann writes that the prophetic task of the church, the prophetic tasks of the church, are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, grieve in a society that practices denial, and express hope in a society that lives in despair. Our job as followers of Jesus, as his church, is to have a message of hope on our lips for a people who live in despair. Isaiah knew God's promises to his people. He knew God's promises to David, that the throne would be occupied, a king would rule in justice, in righteousness, and in faithfulness. And this knowledge about God and about his faithfulness to his promises allowed him to have such a message of hope on his lips. Though he prophesied that the Assyrian army would come and conquer God's people, bringing destruction, though he knew that the mighty trees of Israel would be felled, though he knew that the line of David would seem to be cut off, he also knew God's faithfulness. He also knew his promises to his people. And so a message of hope was on Isaiah's lips. And as the church, we too get to express a message of hope to the world, not because we're naive, not because we're toxically optimistic, not because of anything else except the promises of God and our trust in his faithfulness. Before we continue on to the, the second part of Isaiah's prophecy, I want us to pause to give a, a moment to reflect. When you think of this dry stump, when you think of a, a dry stump with a shoot beginning to emerge, what part of your life do you think about? What, what dead or dark circumstances, relationships, dreams come up in your, in your mind? What seems dormant or lifeless around you? This Advent may be a time to hear anew from the Lord that he is working below the surface. That what seems to be dead and hopeless to our natural eyes and to everyone around us, that in those places God is at work in the dark, because hope begins in the dark. New life is formed always in the dark. Think about it. A seed is planted in the ground, dirt pressed over it. The only way for that seed to grow is when it's buried in the dark. New life in the womb. It's dark in there. Jesus Christ in the grave. Resurrection always starts in the dark. God does beautiful, powerful things in the dark. 
And God is doing something in your life. God is doing something in our lives in the darkness as well. A shoot is springing out of the dry stump. And so if, as you take a moment to, to identify what that, that area or that space in your life is, when you've identified it, would you with me just hold out your hands in a, a posture of offering that situation to the Lord? Asking for new life to sprout and for him to grow your faith to believe that God is working in you in the dark. In the midst of the darkness that's around you, that, that God is faithfully present and his resurrection power is at work. And so God, we ask you this morning to help us embrace what you are doing in the darkness. And instead of running from you and from your work, we ask that, that you would empower us by your spirit, that we would be able to patiently attend to what your spirit is cultivating in us in this moment. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So the, the second half of, of Isaiah's poem, his prophecy here, it begins in, in verse 6. And, and here we move from a, um, a forest that's been cut down, and we move to a pasture. And here in this pasture, we get a vision of an impossible possibility. After this message of hope, hope that God will fulfill all his promises, that life will come even after death and destruction, Isaiah's poetry continues on, painting a picture of, of what this new life will result in. Beginning in verse 6, we read that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." This is an incredibly impossible prophecy. We know how nature works. We know how the animal kingdom works, the, the circle of, of life, right? Where the, the strong and the powerful eat the less powerful, and that's how life continues on. And, and here we get a picture of a lamb letting down its guard and inviting the wolf to come and live with it. This seems completely unrealistic to us and would have been unrealistic to Isaiah's original audience. Because the animal kingdom survives, 
in a way where the, the strong and powerful devour those who are less powerful. Animals are aggressive by nature, eating and devouring each other to survive. We can't imagine any other way for the world to exist. And this, this prophetic poetry seems almost laughingly unrealistic. This isn't how the world works. How many times have you heard the phrase that in a perfect world, sure. In a perfect world, sure, but that's not how the world works. We can't imagine a world where the wolf and the lamb could lie down together, where carnivores don't prey or don't devour their prey because nature just wouldn't work any other way, right? A bear can't survive just eating grass. The, the same theologian that we read earlier, Walter Brueggemann, he also writes that this poem is about deep, radical, limitless transformation in which we, like lion, wolf, and leopard, will have no hunger for injury, no need to devour, no yearning for brutal control, no passion for domination. It's of course not possible, except that the sprout comes out of the stump by the spirit. It's the impossible possibility of new creation. Completely unrealistic hope that the life springing forth from this stump, that it will grow and give life to all humanity and transform all of creation. A vision so unrealistic so out of sync with the way things are that it jars us out of our lethargy. It opens our eyes to see how violent the, the reality that we currently live in is, and it gives us a startling picture of what could be in God's new creation. We've become so used to how the world is and how the world works. It's as if our our um, experience of what is normal, we forget is really God's abnormal. We have grown accustomed to injustice, to evil. It's just the way the world is, like predator and prey, the strong devouring the weak. But Isaiah is pointing to a more real reality. The future he sees in God's kingdom where the unthinkable and the unimaginable have happened, where there's worldwide peace and wholeness. Right? Even that phrase, worldwide peace, to us is almost a, a laugh or a joke. Right? It's, a, it's an answer that beauty pageant contestants give. Right? What, do you, what do you hope for? For world peace. Right? It's something that in our minds just is not going to happen. But it's the vision that God has given his people of how the world really will be when his kingdom is fully seen on earth and when the life, the resurrection life that the spirit of God gives and that the spirit of God works in us, when that same resurrection life is spread across the earth, we will experience the reality of this 
prophecy. This is what God promises. He promises a day when the strong will no longer devour the weak because our very nature will be changed like a carnivorous lion becoming vegetarian. Everything about us will change so that we can live in line with this vision. It's like Paul's words in the letters to the Corinthian church in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. When Paul describes the, the reality of our new life in Jesus, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. An impossible possibility, because new life has begun in Jesus Christ. We can even now begin to live this eternal resurrection life. We can live the reality of new creation now as his new creation. Our old self taken off and a new self put on, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of our creator. And in the church, among God's people, the implications of salvation are seen. And the way we live together, displaying the coming reality of this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, where the wolf and the sheep are living together. Where old enmities are laid to rest where there's reconciliation. The church can display the reality of the lion grazing 